So much pain and suffering in the world. We're back on track. Do you see that? Man. Natural disasters. Mm-hmm. War. Community tragedies. Ships sinking, mine shafts collapsing, planes going down. On the individual level, bereavement, sickness, disability, broken relationships, involuntary singleness, depression, loneliness, abject poverty, persecution, rejection, unemployment, injustice, fierce temptation, disappointment. And we could just keep going. And the common question arises, if... God is all-powerful and good. Why pain and suffering? Why does it exist, and why doesn't he stop it? Some people come to the only conclusion that God either isn't all-powerful, or he must not be good. And I am happy to say today that there's a completely, there's an alternative um, conclusion that's completely logical and overarching, uh, gives us a picture for the why of pain and suffering. And while this may not uh, completely erase our present tears and sorrow, it will provide you, I believe, with a sense of understanding and justice and hope. The Bible actually addresses this topic head-on in almost every book of the Bible. It doesn't skirt the issue, it doesn't ignore it, it addresses it head-on, the issue of why for pain and suffering. Is, addresses it fully and completely. And we're going to look at just five, if we get that to that many, we got to three in the first service, five keys to understanding the why of pain and suffering. So follow along on your, on your uh, bulletin there. The first one is origin of pain and suffering. Origin of pain and suffering. God creates the Garden of Eden, creates a perfect world, beautiful Creates man, creates woman. They have meaningful work to do. Their life is fulfilled. They have intimacy with God. There's purity. There's love. There's trust. There's joy. There's peace. All of creation is in tune. And God tells Adam and Eve, he gives them one rule. And the rule is this in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But the Lord God warned them. Now note, he didn't trick them, he didn't uh, with, withhold information from them. He was up front with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he says, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. It's food poisoning. Don't eat from that one tree. And, uh, and Adam and Eve... What do they do? Instead of trusting God, instead of obeying God, they doubt God, they rebel against God, they disobey God, they eat of the fruit, and um, the sin of humanity ushers in disease, decay, and death. Man, women, woman, and creation itself experience the consequences, and we see it in Genesis 3. Um, at first, they're hiding. They know that what they've done is wrong. All of a sudden, for the first time, they experience guilt, shame, condemnation. They're trying to hide from the perfect God who loves them. And God comes to them, and he, he finds them, and, and, and they're blaming each other. Or <laughs> Adam's blaming Eve. Eve's blaming the serpent. And, um, and God says, okay, I told you that in the day that you eat of it, you would surely die. 
And so here's a, a glimpse of what that looks like. He says in, in verse 16, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, speaking to the woman. And I saw that six times with my wife, and I thought, oh, that was a bad consequence. <laughs> and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. She still can't beat me in wrestling. It's great. <laughs> verse 17, and to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife instead of what God told you about that tree, and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you, man. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. You will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for which you were made from dust, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. In the moment they sinned, their purity was gone. And they experienced the guilt, shame, and condemnation. In that moment, their bodies became susceptible to disease, decay, and death in that very moment. Just as God said. Most tragic, the spiritual intimacy they had with God was severed. That perfect relationship of trust and obedience and love and God taking care of them. They ripped that apart. They severed it. They created a chasm between God and his holy heaven and his perfect heaven and themselves and this earth. And man, woman, and creation felt the consequences of their sin. Now, it's good to note that their sin did not catch God off guard. He wasn't surprised at all about their sin. Not for one second. He didn't say, oh, doggone it, I had a perfect world there. What happened? Oh, they let me down there. No. Nope, it did not catch him up. He knew humankind would initially rebel. And then we could ask, well, then why in the world did he create the earth? Why did he put people down there and give them this freedom if he knew they were going to rebel against him and reject him? And, and why would he do it? Uh, one of the reasons is Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. He knew man would be foolish, he knew man would be rebellious. But he saw a reason to do it anyway. It was worth it to him. He thought, I can redeem these people. I can redeem them. And they will be a greater species because of it. Because they will understand grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion. Unconditional love. They're going to see something. We're going to have something even better um, than otherwise could be. Evidently, God saw that it was worth it. And that's just one of the reasons. God had planned all along to send Jesus as the Messiah, even before creating the world. So, number one, we have to understand where did pain and suffering come from? It came from sin. Sin messed everything up. And it ushered in disease, decay, and death. 
That's the origin of sin, or that's the origin of pain and suffering. That's where it initially came from. The consequences that humankind brought on to itself. And each of us have played a part in expanding and expounding upon that. We've all been a source of pain and suffering in the world to others through our lies or our mistruths or our cheating or etc. We've all had a part to play in that. Types of pain and suffering. Number two, types of pain. Some of these are easy to understand. Some of them very difficult. The first one's probably the most easiest uh, to understand. Self-induced. If I drink and drive and then crash, we kind of see the correlation there, right? Uh, If I abuse drugs and become addicted, we see this, this cause and result, effect, to our actions. We lead selfish lives or greedy or lustful or arrogant or we have bad tempers. Um, then we see broken relationships and unhappiness in many different forms. And so self-induced. We've all experienced self-induced pain and suffering. Some of us more than others. Right? Two, others inflict. Sometimes it's caused by other people. Others inflict pain and suffering. Much of the world's pain and suffering is a result of this. Some people have said maybe up to 90%, 95% of the world's pain and suffering is due to other people murdering, adultery, theft, sex abuse, unloving parents, slander, recklessness of others, greed of others, the drunk driving of others. And so others inflict pain and suffering. That one we can understand too. We've all, God's given us all the freedom. We can do the right things and we can do the wrong things. And people choose wrong things. And the consequences, the natural consequences, are this sin, the decay, the death, the the diseases. Third one might be a little harder to understand initially for some. Fallen world. A lot of the pain and suffering is a result of this world being a fallen world. We read about it in Genesis, that the ground is cursed. Part of the consequences is the whole world itself is in dissonance. It's out of tune a little bit. We see the beauty and the glory and the magnificence and the warmth and the peace and this, the beauty of creation, but then we also see the coldness and the fault lines and the harshness. And it seems like it's so glorious, but then it's, it's off kilter just a little bit. And tornadoes and volcanoes... And the word dissonance is a musical term, and it comes from, if we had a note here, it's a nice note, it's a pretty note, and then we play another one right next to it. It just doesn't sound quite like it should. And we see the beauty of God's creation, and then we see how it's been, it's been affected by sin. And world itself, creation itself, groans. And it doesn't work quite as it ought to. And a tornado knocks out a house of a great family. Or in a fallen world, the world is not quite right. It's messed up. The most difficult of all is the next one. Unpredictable nature. We can't predict it. We can't say, oh, that person's evil, so he's going to die. 
or this person's good so he's not going to have hardship. Oftentimes there's no visible correlation between good and bad actions and the justice or the lack of justice that befalls a person. I think of Gavin who was uh, a young boy, fell down the stairs at his house, shattered his back, spent 13 years in the hospital. We're thinking, nobody sinned right there. Why did that happen to this good kid? And that's the unpredictability, unpredictability. I can't even, I don't know the right word. Unpredictable. And did you know that the Bible addresses that over and over and over and over again? Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, and I love the book of Proverbs. Because the book of Proverbs is a book of principles that if you live by, have expected outcomes, probabilities. The book of Proverbs has principles that lead to probabilities. All right? So if you work hard, you're likely to profit. If you are lazy and a sluggard, you're likely to become poor. If you are a liar, you will probably lose credibility among people. And, so, and it just goes on and on. It gives so many proverbs of wise advice on how to live your life. And if you live it in certain ways, you can expect certain outcomes. And the proverbs are great advice for us. However, almost all of them are not guarantees. They're probabilities. Which is why the author of Proverbs, Solomon, also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, Solomon answers all the questions that are outside of Proverbs. And he says, he says it's throughout the book, it's 11 or 12 chapters, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he, over and over again, talks about all these instances of unpredictable pain and suffering and injustice and unfairness. He writes that there seems to be no difference in the events that befall the wise or the foolish, and oftentimes it's upside down. He speaks of a man who, who labors hard with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and yes, he, yet he must leave his entire heritage to a fool, oftentimes. There's someone who has done nothing, who's not labored for it. He says, how does that make sense? That a foolish person could be the most wealthiest in a city or a town or a state or a country. It just doesn't make sense. Making sense of on earth, he said, is like vanity. It's like grasping for the wind. There's a phrase that he uses 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. The phrase is this, under the sun. Under the sun, meaning that big golden yellow thing up there. Under the sun, things do not make sense. In other words, apart from God... Apart from a heaven, apart from an accountant, a judge, things down here will not make sense. And you try to connect the dots and you will fail. He says, under the sun, 30 times, meaning apart from God, these things do not make sense. Here's one, here's one instance. He says, I've observed something else under the sun. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11 and 12. I've observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry. The skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. People can never predict when hard times might come. Like a fish in the net or birds in a trap, people are caught 
by sudden tragedy. Apart from a judgment day, or apart from a good God, the scales are not balanced. They are not on earth. And we'll go crazy trying to figure out why they don't line up or why one person seems to get justice and another doesn't. A murderer gets off scot-free and an innocent person gets executed. The Bible just continually looks at this. It looks at the, the book of Job is dedicated to this. Job, a righteous man living for the Lord, and who suffers greatly in losing all of his children to death, all of his wealth, his health, losing all but his life to health. Extreme, excruciating pain. And his wife says, Joe, why don't you just curse God and die? He said, naked I was coming into this world, naked I'll be going out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He understood something. His friends came to him and they accused him. They said, Job, you must have done something evil. You must have done something wrong. That's why all these bad things are happening to you. You must deserve some punishment. At the end of the book, God vindicates Job and blesses Job. In the book of John, Jesus is walking along. John chapter 9, he's walking along. He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples ask him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. God healed that man. Luke 13, 1 through 5, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some, of the, some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices in the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. No. Nope. And you will perish too, unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. He actually does a a turn right there and addresses something other, which we'll talk about in a second. Verse 4, And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. I tell you again, though, that unless you repent, you will perish too. There's two things going on right here. First, Jesus is saying, be slow to rush to judgment on somebody. You think there's a correlation, they were worse sinners, and that's why some of this happened? He's saying there's also the fallen world, and there's also the unpredictable nature of things on this earth, and justice justice doesn't happen on this earth. But then he says this too, he says, but we should examine our own hearts. Guess what? Everybody's sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen, we're all sinners, and we need to come to a point where we acknowledge our sin instead of denying it or justifying it. Or excusing it. And that's what he's saying. All people need to come before God in humbleness. And God desires to save people. In fact, scripture says God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And God desires that no one perish, but that all come to repentance. That all say, God, I've sinned. I need your mercy. Not hiding in the garden like Adam and Eve, but coming to God. God, I'm I'm a sinner. That's what he's looking for. And he's waiting to lavish forgiveness and mercy and grace upon people's lives. And that's what Jesus is getting to here. 
Jesus came to conquer the curse of sin and death on our behalf. Came to conquer it. Number three in our notes is that, um, and this gets overlooked or diminished sometimes when it ought not be because it's, it's very um, um, the greatest thing about pain and suffering is the opportunities afforded. Opportunities afforded through pain and suffering. Now, to be clear, pain and suffering is not good in, uh, in and of itself. It's not directly caused by God. It was initiated or started, of course, by sin and people. But God is able to use it for good. And he can turn what was meant for evil to good. And how? In certain situations, pain and suffering can get our attention. Makes us have to deal with reality. Cuts through the noise and the distractions of life. Helps us understand that something is wrong. Sometimes when it's us that's doing something foolish or living in a certain way, a little bit of pain can get our attention and make us realize, oh, that's the, not the right thing. Maybe, I, maybe uh, having a hangover in the morning, maybe I shouldn't be drinking like that the night before. Or all of a sudden you get a... Um, overdraft statement in the mail, a little bit of emotional pain. Oh, I guess we need to put some more money in there. We need to stop spending money. A little bit of pain. Touch a a burner, put your hand on the burner on the stove, and that immediate pain to your finger causes a react, gets your attention, and it really saves the rest of your hand from getting burnt off. That pain gets our attention. Sometimes the only way we can get someone's attention, I have a two-year-old, the only way we can get their attention is not by calling them their name, not by telling them the right things, but pain in some manner, a consequence in some manner that will speak to them on a deeper level when they are calloused toward mom and dad's voice. Pain can get our attention. In other situations, um, all, all situations probably can give us perspective. Helps us prioritize what's most important. I guess the most important thing in life is not just money or power or comfort or pleasure. I guess it's not. I guess it's the eternal. I guess it's in trusting in the Lord and living for God. There's more to this life and more at stake. Christopher Compton wrote... Over 23 years ago, my first son, Harry, died after only 36 hours. At the time, his death seemed monstrously unfair, and in one sense, it undoubtedly was. Now, with hindsight, I'm quite certain his death was one of the best things that has ever happened to me in that it began the process of breaking me down so that with God's grace, I could begin to understand how other people felt and how other people suffered. The humbling created infusion of compassion and love, deeper love, of relatability to other people for Christopher. Can give us perspective. It can produce maturity in us. It can build character, perseverance, a steadiness. God can use pain and suffering to train us in righteousness. Gives us opportunity to grow in patience 
faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control can deepen our quality of love that we have. Trials and tests can deepen our faith. Think of an orange. You squeeze an orange and the sweetness drips out. It can make us more fruitful. God prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more fruit. You say, why can't God just give me all these things without pain and suffering? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. That's our part. It's our part to trust God or to learn from God or to know or want to or resist or not listen. And God can be speaking truths to us and it doesn't seem, we don't have the capacity for it. Zero capacity for it until we've been met with some realities of life and spiritual truth. We do know this. This is so amazing. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It's God's specialty. And so with Joseph in the Bible, Old Testament, his brothers sell him into slavery into Egypt, figuring that... A few years, he, they were going to kill him, and then thought, oh, we can make money on him instead. Let's make money on him. He'll die in Egypt. They earned 30 pieces of silver selling uh, Joseph into slavery. And <clears throat> Joseph goes into slavery, and long story short, he gets convicted for something he didn't do, gets thrown in jail. But after some time there, he gets promoted to vice president of Egypt, second in command to Pharaoh. And, um, and it's decades before that happens, but after decades, he becomes... Vice president, we can call him. In Egypt, there's a famine across all the lands, and, and his brothers and his family that live out in Israel, they come all the way to Egypt for food. And who's in charge of all the granaries and the food distribution? It's Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him initially until he lets them know who he is. <clears throat> and they think, oh, crud, he's going he's gonna to get revenge on us as he ought to when we deserve it. We're going to die. And Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And Joseph saved his brother's lives. The cross of Christ. The crossroads, the intersection of suffering and the why question. Human beings abuse their God. Given freedom to nail Jesus to the cross, but God uses that very abuse, enabling Jesus to pay the price for that sin and all the sins throughout all of time. God worked through the suffering. What people intended for evil, God used for good. God more than compensates for suffering. If this is the level that someone suffered, God doesn't say, okay, then we need to compensate them. Okay, now now the scales are even. God doesn't do that. He does this. 
This is his compensation. Hundredfold. Jesus says that to, to his, his disciples. He says, when you're going out and people persecute you because of me, or if you, have to, if you lose family because of me, or you lose riches, before, you'll have tenfold or hundredfold in heaven. He's a good God. He's a generous God. God more than compensates for suffering. You know that Jesus now has the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess the glory of God the Father. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's been exalted. Why does God leave us down here? Why does he leave Christians here? And why does he send us willingly into, um, oftentimes he's sent his, his people into difficult and yucky environments where they are persecuted? Because he loves the world. He wants all people to have a chance to see him. To understand who he is. To put their faith in him. And so he loves us. He doesn't like to see us suffer in such ways. When speaking about having us be a light in the world. But he's willing to do it. To save people. Just like Christ. We're an extension of Christ now through his Holy Spirit. In us as believers. Number four, future of pain and suffering. There is none in heaven. There's no future. No future of pain and suffering. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, no tears, no sorrow, no death. God is with us. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone, and I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, and all these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Cool. Cool. Paul writes in Romans, he says, Yet what we suffer now, and he's talking about Christians that are losing their lives, right? Losing their lives to tell about the love of God, the truth of Christ. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children. And I missed the end of that line. (laughs) Keeps going. For we know, look at this, for we know that all... For we know that all creation has been groaning. There it is. As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory. We long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. 
One more, uh, one more passage Paul gives us. He's writing in the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Look at this one. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. My children, sometimes when there's a consequence for behavior, it seems like it's the most severe thing in the world to them, and it's the end of the world. It's the end of life. But I, as a parent, know the long road and, and what this is doing in them. And, and, and God says that there's an eternity for us. And Paul says, for our present troubles are very small, and they won't last very long in the grand scheme of things, right? Right? Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So Gavin, the kid that fell down the stairs and shattered his back, um, someone overheard him say that God is fair. And... and, um, and this guy's guy a professor. He, he asked Gavin, Gavin, how can you say that when you've been in the hospital for 13 years? And Gavin said, oh, God, God's got all eternity to make it up to me. God, God compensates. And under the sun, no, it doesn't make sense. But in light of eternity, it certainly does. And with a perfect accountant and a perfect judge, it certainly does. It certainly does. It certainly will. This last one is maybe, maybe the best. We're just looking at five keys to understanding pain and suffering today. But number five, God knows pain and suffering. The God who suffers with us. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.19 For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself no longer counting people's sins against them and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation that's what we get to do too he became one of us he suffered in all the ways in which we suffer he does not just know about suffering he has suffered himself he knows what we are feeling when we suffer Isaiah 53.3 says that he was despised and rejected. This prophecy was 700 years before. It's speaking in present or past tense. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and he looked the other, and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Speaking of Christ. There was, um, cast that little red book. Can you grab it for me? That little pain and suffering book? Huh? Oh, I don't, or even if Bob has it. Bob, do you have that little red book? There was a story I wanted to read. Can you grab that from Bob? Perfect. There's a little story I want to read you because it's, it bears reading. Thanks. The long silence 
the name of this poem, story. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on the great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number with a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a young man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light and where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups set forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a young black man, a person from Hiroshima, horribly deformed arthritic, abused children. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. So just a little writing by somebody, but God knows pain and suffering. God knows pain and suffering. This verse is going to be a blessing to you. Psalm 56, verse 8. The psalmist is writing, he says, You, God, keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. God knows. God cares. Jeremy Camp... um, you heard of that musician. He got married in 2000, October of 2000, to Melissa Lynn Henning. And they were married for not even four months when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and died within four months. She was, uh, he was 23, she was 21. And some of his early songs reflect the emotional ordeal of, of her illness. He wrote the song, I still believe in your faithfulness. Singing to God. Even when I can't see, I still believe. If 
Five keys to understanding pain and suffering, just a few of them from the Bible. The Bible addresses it head on. It says the origin of pain and suffering is sin. Sin. And there's suffering of many types. Sometimes it's self-induced. Sometimes others inflict. Sometimes it's part of being in the fallen world. It's unpredictable. The Bible is up front with that. The Bible is also up front that there is purpose in the pain and suffering. There can be that God can redeem it, can get our attention, can give us perspective, can produce maturity, can make us more fruitful, can give us a platform to speak to others and give us a credibility before other people, a relatability. There's a future of pain and suffering. Um, there isn't one, actually. Future of pain and suffering in heaven. There isn't one. The scales are balanced. The accounts are brought into check. The perfect judge will judge, and he will compensate. And God knows pain and suffering, and you know what? Um, he knows pain and suffering, and he is with you through pain and suffering. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, is available to dwell with us and to lead us and to be our comforter and to give us strength. Thankful for that. So the question oftentimes people ask is, why me with pain and suffering? Or why her? Or why them? That's the response. And and Jesus said that too. Jesus said that. Why? But Jesus knew. Physically, he said, why? Spiritually, he knew. He said, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my life. We, we can ask why, but here's some other questions we can ask. And, and just follow me on the end here. Good, great questions to ask when we were going through pain and suffering. Number one, we can say, is this suffering a result of my own sin, if it's self-induced? We can ask that question. We can ask, what are you trying to say to me through this? Maybe God is has something he wants to teach us or wants us to learn. And other times, maybe it's, what do you want me to do? How, how can I best respond? In light of the pain and the suffering, how can I best respond, Lord? What path do you have for me in light of this situation or in light of this hurt? Or how might you, God, use this suffering to help someone else know you or grow in their faith? Those are some more questions that we can ask. And lastly, how do we walk through this suffering? Others in church can be of great help to us. To lean on other people. Hold on to the hope that Jesus has given us. We can weep with those who weep. We can be with people. Show compassion. We can fight against suffering. Suffering is an alien intrusion. We can feed the hungry. We can heal the sick. We can preach the good news to the poor. We can help those in poverty. You know, we can fight against the suffering. That's a noble thing to do. The Lord has us doing that as well. It doesn't make it easy, but it does make sense, and God is on the throne. You guys stand with me this morning. God, I thank you, Lord, for this morning, and I thank you for your Bible, Lord, because, man, it cuts through all the fat. I thank you, God, that you um, 
care about people and that you have provided for us, Lord, graces and mercies, and you provided for us a heaven. You provided for us your Holy Spirit. God, you know. Praise you, God. Lord, you are powerful and you are good. You're both of those things. also patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you this morning, our lives, Lord. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord. We put our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we cling to you, Jesus, our Savior, lover of our soul. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to energize us, to renew our mind, to give us strength, Lord. Hallelujah. And we rejoice in you, God, for your wonder, your glory, your wisdom, your timing. Jesus' name.